Hello, and welcome to episode three of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we're coming to you from Houston, Texas and Barbados, respectively. <laughs> Let's see, so far we have talked about... We've talked about Ted Chang, and we've talked about... Edgar, Edgar Middleholzer. Edgar, thank you. I was tripping on <laughs> And today we're going to finish talking about Ted Chang, probably, and we're going to start up talking about Greg Egan. One of the major stories from Story of Your Life and Others, uh, which is Ted's major collection, is called Hell is the Absence of God. And we hadn't had a chance to talk about it last episode, and we thought that's... That might be where to start this time. And I'm trying to even think of how to summarize it. Well, hmm, that's a very good way. (laughs) That's a very good point. Um, So in a world where you are absolutely sure of what happens to people after they die, because you can see angels come and and affect people. You can see people ascending to heaven when they die, and you can see Mm -hmm. people going to hell when they die. Mm -hmm. A man loses his wife and knows that she's gone to heaven. Yes. He obviously believes in God because there's absolute proof. Not believing is not an option. But he doesn't love God the way it would be required to go to heaven. So he is trying to find a way to love God so that he can get to heaven and be with his wife. And he really can't. He tries a lot of different things and he really can't. And so there's sort of a, there's almost a get out of jail free card. (laughs) The, um, the, The angels arrive and when they do, a, a person can be sort of just struck with the knowledge of the presence of God and is instantly catapulted into this sense of, of ecstasy and adoration. And um, that's so he decides to go and seek that out. But there is a catch. If you purposefully go out to seek that experience, you will automatically go to hell. Am I caught that right? Well, but, okay, so that's a matter... I re- you know, I'm really not sure because, well, of course, there were, it was described that there were people alive who had had the experience and who were suffused with the love of God no matter what, the people who'd been struck blind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure. It seemed to me that there were people who had seen the angels, died as part of the experience, and risen to heaven. I got the the feeling that even though it was suicidal, mm-hmm. that for other people it had worked. Well, the the trick seemed to be that if you were in a sort of a self-serving way, going out of your way to get the experience, then generally what seemed to have happened before was that you would not necessarily see that light at the at the key moment, but you would have been caught trying to find that light, and that was what would cause you to go to hell. Hmm. Huh. Sounds as if we have dual readings. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, yeah, I guess... Because his particular circumstance, which we will unfold to you eventually, sounded very specific to him, as if this did not happen usually. Because you had on the one hand, um, as I said, those those who were um, going to go to hell. Because the 
the idea of hell is that the idea that people who were seeking the experience to go to hell is that the idea is that you're supposed to try to find the love of God out of your own effort, out of your own um, free will and choice. And the, the angels appearing, the, 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 the flash of light that, by the way, instantly blinds you, um, takes away your, your physical eyes and fills you this adoration is, is not a choice. It's an accident. It's something that, that completely takes you over and, and your free will has nothing to do with it. So it's almost like, let me see if I can give an example. Mm. It's almost like, an, this is going to sound wrong, but it's almost like an instantaneous indoctrination. Not, not an intended indoctrination, but it's almost, it's almost like this, this drug where you're no longer in your right mind. So it's no, it was no longer a choice for you. So the idea is that you shouldn't go and seek it out because the real trick or the real competition in terms of heaven or hell is, did you find, did you seek out and find the love of God for yourself as opposed to trying to get a shortcut? Right, right. And but if you're seeking the shortcut, they'll be like, bad you, straight to hell. Well, okay, it's interesting that you say that. And the reason I say is because I got the feeling that there was... There was a system. There was something like the laws of physics. It was a rational system within the universe as it was portrayed. And so it wasn't... I didn't get the feeling that there was anything personal. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. Because when you were saying, you know, that that sounds like there's somebody judging. But uh, even with the fact that there's a personification of God and there are these angels that are personifications of whatever angelic forces... It felt very impersonal. That's a very good point. And I should have said that um, you can have rules. You said rules of physics, but you can have rules of law that are in a way like rules of physics, where you may not. The law can be as impersonal, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So the consequences will always be there. Well, that gets back to my my take on, on Ted Chiang as an alternate cosmology writer. Ah, right, right. Yeah, where mm-hmm. this is part of the laws of physics for that universe. Or mm-hmm. something along, obviously not the laws of physics, but a, a parallel set of laws that is just as dominant in that universe as, as physics is in ours. Yes, yes. It, it all, it, it, there's a rationale behind it. There's, there's definitely, you know, if you do X, Y will happen. Right, right. And that- people have identified these rules. So you're quite right. I shouldn't make it sound as if it's, it's just a sort of, um, capricious, you know, we're going to be mean to you because you you disobeyed us, sort of thing. It's not like that at all. It really does sound like completely, simply, these are the consequences. Right. Then makes his case so interesting because what happens is he goes seeking. He misses the first sort of angelic appearance, but is then caught out as somebody who was seeking it. So then is doomed to hell. But then just before he dies. There is another angelic appearance, and that one catches him, so that just before he goes to hell, he experiences overwhelmingly the love of God. So it's a strange lightning strikes twice, um, never happened before, or maybe sort of vanishingly small chance that it would have ever happened sort of situation. And and he ends up being somebody who um, sought it out, but actually found what he sought and also has the consequences to pay for having sought this out. And we should also mention that hell in this case is not a fire and brimstone place of punishment. It is simply a place where you go when you die where you are guaranteed to be cut off from God. 
Yeah, and, and it sounded very much like a boring cocktail party. <laughs> yeah, didn't it? it? It just sounded extremely gray and bland. Because there were people there who knew other people, and they were like, oh, good, you're here too. Yeah, we didn't really believe in that, did we? Yeah, you know, yeah, we're, we're better off without God. And and they're all just, just I mean, we don't want to make it sound as if heaven that was then portrayed as sort of like light and life and dancing and whatever, and then hell was definitely a worse place. Each set of people seemed to be happy where they were. Right, right. People in hell were happy to be there they didn't want to encounter god they, they they wanted god removed from their lives they got what they wanted and the people who were in heaven who had the love of god when they were um found the love of god when they were living now had it permanently in heaven and they were perfectly happy with that right but then right the is called our protagonist who in trying to find his way to his wife in heaven sought a shortcut to find the love of god but then doomed himself to hell. And an even worse hell because he found it. For him, this hell is different because for him, he has the absence of God having fully experienced the presence of God. Yeah. And that was fascinating. I have, I have no words to tell you just how absolutely fascinating that was. <laughs> well, and Sorry. One thing, I want to talk a little bit about obsessive protagonists. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they drive so much fiction and science fiction. Because this point, gentleman yeah. would have been a perfectly happy, athe- not atheist, but what the equivalent of atheism is in that in that world where, sure, God exists, I don't really love him, I'm going to go to hell and I don't really care, and that's fine. He would have been one of those very contented people if it weren't that he couldn't bear the thought of living without his wife. Yes. So, of course, now hell is doubly bad because he's living without God, who's he, whose love he's experienced, and he's living without his wife, whose love motivated the entire story. Yeah, yeah. And it may sound strange that we're almost laughing at this, and we don't mean to make it sound as if we're belittling the poor man's pain, but why this is so fascinating is that, well, first of all, as a character, do you, I got some serious Walter Mitty vibes for some reason, in the sense that he's, he sounds like a very ordinary, very placid, very you know, just bumbling along kind of person. And then, as you say, when he loses his wife, he just suddenly starts to single-mindedly go after this one thing that's going to make sure that they end up together again. And there's there's always, even before he loses his wife, there's always this underlying, I don't quite want to say pathos, that may be a bit strong. But the idea is that um, besides his wife, he doesn't seem to have any grand passion in his life. Well, honestly, the rest of his life was barely sketched in. What did he do for a living? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> what was his day job? How did he have all the time to go do uh-huh. this? I honestly, that that upon rereading, uh, part of me was like, "Hey, wait! <laughs> Real people have to go to jobs, and and you know, can't can't take all this vacation time to go hunt down angelic visitations." Mm-hmm. Well, but this is it. You you got a sense of a man on a quest. I mentioned Walter Mitty. Maybe another example is Don Quixote, where you are you are literally um, you know you're you're finding these uh, these these impossible things to chase after. And um, Don Quixote was having way more fun than George. <laughs> I just have to say. Well, you know, up, up but, to the but, point. I take your point absolutely. And so, in a way, you get caught up in that. And then the the twist at the end, as I said, 
in a way you feel sad for him but you don't feel as sad as if you had shall we say completely put yourself in his shoes mm. because it's always a slight element of shall we say the buffoon in a way not not quite right the he's he's a, a, a tragic comic figure there's a tiny little thread of both pathos and comedy running through his efforts. I think you're absolutely right, and this might be the perfect time to bring up one thing I noted in my notes, which I actually made this time, which is that this is very has very strong third-person omniscient narration. Ah, yes, to make sure that you stay distant. To make sure that you stay distant, and that's what gives you the distance to make George feel... While he is tragic, you're right, it's not the tragic of somebody that you are 100% empathizing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, I have a huge soft spot in my heart for third-person omniscient. <laughs> and a lot of times, I well, one other major example that I can think of where the third-person omniscient narrator has that distance from characters to whom tragic things are happening and yet you kind of are looking at them and going, yeah, you brought it on yourself. Mm-hmm. There's a, a Michael Flynn novel titled The Wreck of the River of Stars. It's Just- it's a very divisive book. You either love it or you hate it. I personally loved it, and I the thing I loved about it the most was that that narrator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was very, and I think I'm glad you brought up, brought up the point about the narrator because as a story, it could have been done so badly. There were so Ooh, many good points to be. Um, either upsetting or offensive or just just plain strange on so many levels, but it it turned out to be none of those things. I admit that I began it with um, apprehension because um, I had already um, seen a good few stories which turned out to be these sort of polemics on um, you know blind faith is so bad or you know here are these foolish people you know doing this and you get these very kind of almost unlikable uh, archetypes of certain types of behavior, certain kinds of behavior. Mm-hmm. And it it then doesn't turn into a very good story. But what we have here with, with Chang is, again, a very nicely thought out world. It's not only a world, it's a society. So that everything hangs together and makes sense, even when it's absolutely insane. <laughs> and And you're not thinking to yourself, Oh, um, you know, he he is actually removed in in order to examine this concept of religion. He has actually removed some of the, shall we say, the the real life problems of religion because it's not a blind faith. They know right. God exists. Right, and and that's one of the most fascinating things about it is the way he takes faith and belief totally out of the equation and right. says, if you look at the Bible, what does it take? You know what does God demand? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's more about love, acceptance. You know, acknowledgement. Right, right. So now, one thing we so we've been talking about George, and he's obviously the A plot. Mm-hmm. But there's also a B plot revolving around the woman who was born with no legs. Ah, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And becomes a spokesman for basically this sort of you know, living life positively, even though you're disabled. Mm-hmm. 
mention the miraculous healings that also occur when the angels appear. <laughs> right. So, so angelic appearances have lots of consequences. They can destroy property. They can destroy people. They can disable people. They can heal people, and they can send people to heaven. Mm-hmm. Amongst uh, that's a very simplified list. Obviously, it's it's almost like a natural cataclysm that just kind of happens relatively often. No, there's no malice attached to it. It's completely, it's like a, it's just like a huge force of nature, if you will. Right, right. Yeah, it feels, again, it's that very impersonal feeling. This is just the way the universe is. You almost get the sense that the angel has better things to do and just happens to be fast and you get caught in the back draft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, you do kind of wonder, it's like, well, wait, what's the angel actually doing? But... Again, it's very impersonal. It's like a meteor isn't doing anything, but when it hits you, it can really mess you up. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> so, so this woman has dedicated her life to God, and the way she and she truly loves God, and the way that she serves is to help other people live with with their disabilities. Obviously, she was she was born with no legs. Then she's healed. And having been so positive about her disability, now she has to try and work that healing into the narrative of her life. It's a challenge. Which is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Because then the question is, why me? Exactly. Exactly. Somebody- is it a reward? Is it a punishment? Is it? And again, I'd, I'd argue that it's neither. It's, it's chance. It's they an were impersonal right? universe. Mm-hmm. And that it's her responsibility to to integrate that into a narrative, and 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 you see how fascinating all these things are because, as I said, um, as you said earlier, he's removed belief and faith from the equation, but so many of the questions of religion still remain. Right, and then there's a gentleman who is also seeking, mm-hmm. and who sort of throws his lot in with the with the woman. Yes. And I don't know, how well do those how well do those plots resonate with each other? I think that in a way I think that what they helped to show you to underline in a way was the very capriciousness of it all. That was something that could the, the kind of upheaval it would cause in your life. It might be very good, it might be very bad, but somehow you would have to make meaning of it. If, if, they, didn't, if they had not had that backstory, if they had not had that secondary thread, I think I would actually have been more cut up at the protagonist's fate. Ah, interesting. Because it would have seemed more, it would have seemed more personal, it would have seemed more, you know, I would have been like, well, why couldn't you have done something? He was only trying to love his wife and now he's gonna be suffering. I would have been, I would have been more upset. But having seen that, that kind of um, other subplot where, as you say, this woman's given a great gift and it doesn't seem to make her any happier. <laughs> In fact, it makes her quite a bit more distressed, frankly. When, when you saw that, it was kind of like, oh, hang on, wait a minute. It's all back to us again, isn't it? Well, there's a co- also a common thread of seeking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're seeking meaning, seeking purpose. Yes. Yes. And, and this is... Um, this is something that you do find as well running through majority, I think, of his short stories in the collection. Everybody's seeking meaning, everybody's seeking a pattern, whether they're doing it directly through mathematics 
or personally through a particular way of their life is, or maybe in a sense of cosmology, like talk about the the one of the Tower of Babel, did we? No, we kind of skipped that one, but but that fits just what you said perfectly. I'm I'm running over the stories in my mind and going, wow, yeah, you're you're not kidding. That is a big part of his of his fiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that that in a way is going to going to ease us smoothly into the Egan when we start talking about that because I don't feel I've exhausted the Chang yet. But that's going to ease <laughs> us in because Egan I think has some similar concerns some very similar concerns, trying to find patterns, trying to find meaning. Um, but Egan has more, uh, let's just say he's backing a particular horse and he's making sure everybody knows it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I think Egan thinks he knows the answer to that. And, and I'd say Ted is is much more open to to the huge variety of, of ways humans have attempted to answer those questions. And, and, and Ted's, Ted's stories, we, we discussed this in a, in, a, in a side conversation away from the podcast. <laughs> we agreed that there's a sense of play about um, Chang's stories. There's a sense of, and not only, when I say play, I mean not in the sense of um, sort of cops and robbers, good guys, bad guys. I mean literally that it's, it's a game. It's not a competition. So, you know, you look, you look at something like Hell is the Absence of God, and you could so easily set up bad guys and good guys, even if mm. the it might be the angels, for example, and the, the hapless good guys. He does none of that whatsoever. He manages to make everybody on the same sort of moral, moral level, if that's possible, and, and just sort of throws in a lot of what-ifs. A lot of what ifs, a lot of interesting, and and just draws natural consequences, and then leaves you going, ah, oh, that's kind of interesting. And you don't hate anybody. I kind of like that about his work. No, that's really <laughs> you know, lovely. Actually, the only time I can, I'm, I'm again, I'm casting my mind back on the the different stories we've read, and the only one I can think of that has something you could define as a villain is seventy two letters. Yeah, 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 and that was kind of needed. <laughs> yeah, you kind of had to drive the plot, and and it it especially fit with the nineteenth century mold. Yes, yes. But other than that, my goodness, no. I mean, he, and and actually, I have to admit, I I kind of prefer um, fiction without villains because villains are often too easy. Villains are. Mm, villains to me always indicate a very specific point of view when i when i see strong villains i you know whether or not the actual novel the actual story is being told in first person or third person omniscient or whatever range in between it always says to me there's a very specific perspective that's being um presented here and you're buy into it Mm -hmm. so well we we already have various exercises where people always critique villains and their and their so-called motives and question the narrator's reliability and and look for you know look look for something more than just the big bad wolf um but well, i know i know and this is a bit of a tangent but some re- reviewers who reviewed redemption in indigo seem to kind of expect the the man in blue to be a villain yeah 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 and um, they wanted an antagonist. And mind you, an antagonist is not always a villain. Right. That's very different. Yeah. But someone said once, and I thought this was fascinating, but I can't remember where I've read it. 
There are stories where the antagonist is not a person, it is a set of circumstances. Mm. That's what Chang tackles a lot of. People are usually more confronted by the circumstances in their life, the challenges in their lives, rather than by individuals who have kind of set themselves in competition with them. Yeah, I'd say of the classic plots, both Egan and Chang tend towards the man versus universe. Mm -hmm. I said man versus society as well, which Ah. sometimes is challenging than the universe. Yes, quite. Hmm. So, anything more on the Chang, or do we start to look at the Egan? I think that's those that hit my high points for healthy absence of God. Mm-hmm. So, where to go from here? I, I, I might suggest Crystal Knights. Let us suggest Crystal Knights because I found it a fascinating story. Speaking of villains, but yeah, the 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 this. Did you f- I found that, that there was... Well, first of all, no, hold Summary. <laughs> first, summary. Uh, summary. This is basically a Frankenstein story. Uh, there's a super rich industrialist. He's got a super, super computer. And he wants to rule the future in a... Well, that's a very, very crude way of putting it. Mm-hmm. But he decides that instead of designing an AI, he will evolve a society of AIs. And that these AIs will then, and then he will introduce them. His plan is he'll evolve the society to the point where they're smart enough to be useful. He'll introduce himself to them as basically their creator and their god, and they will do everything he wants. And um, to say this doesn't go well is an understatement. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very simple story. It uh, in in that way it um, mirrors very closely. Last microcosmic god is by James Blish. I Oh no, is it Sturgeon? Oh, Blast. You're going to have to look that one up and tell the people afterwards. Uh, I'll correct it afterwards. Anyway, so Microcosmic God. Microcosmic God actually has this happen in in a, instead of a computerized setting, in a physical setting, where the, the mad scientist has an island and he evolves life forms and makes them solve problems for him. But there it actually works, mm-hmm. which is very, very creepy. Very right. creepy story to read nowadays. Uh, Crystal Knights inverts it and and puts it back on the Frankenstein setting where where the rich industrialist gets his comeuppance at the end. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. My my challenge with this story was the the depth of the god complex that he had to the point where he was preemptively creating a villain for himself in advance that he had to fight. That's almost that's that's the best way I can describe it. Are you talking because, about the conversation with the woman programmer at the beginning? No, actually, I was thinking more at the end because he was like, "Well, we have to be the winners. We have to get ahead of those who will definitely be designing their own their own um, AIs." Oh, and, yes. And, okay. Yes. So I was like, "So wait a minute. All this all this was a preemptive strike against the other rich and idle genius, which you're quite sure is doing the same as you is going to rule the world." As <laughs> sure. And um, so I thought to myself, that does start to smack of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting because we've, we've talked before about the, especially in, in Jang stories, the, the passion of the scientist for risk and adventure purely for the search for knowledge, purely for the search for, for truth and, re- and reveal reality and what have you. Mm-hmm. But, but here you have this, you know, this, this, this character who is 
really just saying, let me let me get as powerful as I can get because basically I only trust me. Um, and that's worrying, you know. That's- <laughs> well, but again, he's such a caricature of a villain. He is, he is, he is. Uh, and, and that's made very clear from the very beginning. So it, the, the opening scene is this industrialist is, is pitching his, his project to a, um, a female AI researcher. He thinks she would be a great lead programmer for this um, situation. And she basically says, oh, hell no. And he's oblivious. He's like, boy. But, but, but I'm offering you the best supercomputer in the world. She's like, yeah, that's nice, but I'm not going to program a bunch of, you know, life that will live to suffer she had ethics and he was like ethics what are these (laughs) ethics but that does feed back to the discussion of hell is the absence of god because the main question in crystal knights you know the the plot makes it obvious that that you know the industrialist is the villain and what he did did was wrong but then it it does introduce the question and obviously it's not a new question but given that life in this universe is driven or features a huge amount of death and pain and suffering, if it were truly the product of an intelligent design, how could you believe that designer to be good or benevolent or ethical? Well, do you know, I would look at the question a little differently. You said that he, he, he set up from the very beginning to be a villain. Yes. I will admit something which may cause some people to look at me strangely. I found the science he spoke to at the beginning, although she did demonstrate ethics, I also found her expression of those ethics to be slightly naive in the context of evolving uh, an AI. Okay. Because part of learning, um, if, if learning, learning being attached to evolving in this particular setting, does require making the kind of mistake that you want to avoid in the future, which is really just another description for pain. True, true. And and um, let's see, I believe that the story talks about, you know, when you're talking about code, what does pain mean? Yeah, exactly. Now, so, so there's that funny aspect to it. But what I thought was a little more interesting was she was then saying, if you have something that's intelligent, how can you rule over it? Because then that's the the question of, um, are you basically creating slaves? Right, right. And that's the question that Ted Chang gets back to, not in one of the stories we've read, but in his novella, The Life Cycle of Software Objects. Right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But again, I found her statement to be not naive this time, but maybe a little premature. Because... It's almost a case of, can you make this omelette without breaking the eggs? Can you hope to evolve an an AI without basically taking away any sense of free will, at least in the initial stages? Maybe, maybe, maybe this has actually been dealt with in life where software objects, but it's like, it's like a child. When a child is growing up, you don't say, run around and be free and express yourself and, and, I, and I, I'll just, you know, kind of make sure you don't fall into a ditch kind of thing. There, there's, there's, still, there's still restrictions. There are restrictions on the child as the child learns. And it's, it's fascinating because, you know, we have, we have had a push and pull in society according to how much of it, how much of what happens to a child infringes on the child's rights 
and how much of it is a case of you're actually protecting them from making extremely terrible mistakes. Actually, my observation is the exact flip side of that. My baby's learning to walk right now, Ooh. <laughs> which is which is awesome. But you know, he he's unsteady on his feet, and he he picks himself up, and he walks, and he falls, and he runs into things, and he sits down, and he cries, and I'm like, well, that's I'm afraid that's just how you're gonna learn, baby. I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, and and it's not that I'm encouraging him to suffer but that that's the only way he can make progress absolutely and I, I agree with you there i think probably i didn't give the best possible example i guess i'm thinking more about um okay when he gets a certain age you're going to send him to kindergarten you're going to send him to school oh he's he's already going to daycare i'm afraid yep <laughs> <laughs> and again it's not something that you have a choice in so you know there there's there's elements of of non-choice in your childhood that you know do your chores clean your room wear this uniform that that then people sometimes well it's there there are variations on this there really are there's some people who feel that you become more grounded as an individual if you grow up in a, in a very um of good structure mm-hmm. which is boundaries and which gives um how shall we say, like, things like a bedtime, for example, you know, left to my devices, I stay up far too late. <laughs> <laughs> like, darn, you know, I wish my mother around to stay Karen, it's time to go to bed. <laughs> so, so, you know, they're just, they're just these little things. I mean, I'm, I'm probably still giving some quite trivial examples, and I do apologize for that. But as I said, you're, you're developing an AI. Is there a childlike phase where they're almost like a slave? Right. Okay. So yeah. So Chang Chang hits this exactly in life cycle of softer objects. <laughs> that's that's almost the entire story. <laughs> now, where I think um, the female scientist was correct is that after you have created the AI, if you're then going to be like, right. So now that you're intelligent, your purpose is to do everything I say. Now you know you have problems. You have uh, yeah. cool problems. But but there was so much that. I mean, maybe maybe it, it wasn't strongly put forth strongly enough for me there, but I almost felt as if she said no to him a little too quickly um, because there was so much that she could have done up to, you know, just before they were going to be useful and then say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that the experiment can progress much further. Maybe I'll just take these findings away for a bit. Mm. <laughs> not had her shot by then, but never mind. <laughs> well, I... Before we move on, though, there was one thought that that sparked me back about hell is the absence of God. When we're talking about a deity that needs or that you have to love and cherish in order to ascend, Mm -hmm. but that has created a universe where angels randomly visit the earth and leave massive destruction and pain and suffering in their wake, was George right? not to particularly love that creator? Um, does Or does Wright even think, enter into it at that point? The angels were a very excellent personification of random events. Like you said, like the meteor that hits. Yeah. You, you, you don't know why they're going in that direction. You acknowledge that they're, they're very dangerous and this is going to happen. So, I mean, for angels, read, you know, car crash, read, drought, read, hurricane. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, yeah. All those bad things that happen in the universe. Precisely. And to, to tell the honest truth, I have 
I still have a challenge with framing the argument in that way. Is it right to love a creator that's put you in such a dangerous environment? Because our dangerous environment is what makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. When you look, for example, at the whole point of the of hell is, is the absence of God, there was a point where he was seeking out that danger. Right, you know, absolutely. Was it staying home and thinking, you know, I mean, yes, he had a he had a stake in it. He wanted to get back to his wife. But the and but there were other people as well who may not even have had such such poignant reasons as he did, who were like, No, I I'm gonna I'm gonna try and be there to witness an angel's appearance. You know, you, you you've already got a creature who tends to seek out risk and adventure in various ways. Some people like other types of risks than others. So I'm not saying everybody's gonna go bungee jumping. <laughs> Good point, right? People for them a risk is, you know, being able to stand up and talk in public or um, act on a stage or, you know, have a child or, you know, different types of risk. But there seems to be something inbuilt into the human spirit, I do think, that does, in fact, welcome risk. Now, sometimes the risk may come at a speed and in amounts that we certainly don't welcome. Mm-hmm. But it seems so much a built-in part of our universe and who we are. I'm having difficulty even imagining what we would be like without that. We would be, I mean, even when you look at science fiction stories that imagine a society where no one is hungry and everyone is happy and so on, they almost sound a bit, it usually turns into a dystopia somewhere along the line. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. So, So, you know, you actually have writers trying to create a perfect world uh, and and ending up thinking to themselves either no this is either too boring, or there's some underlying nastiness happening that somebody's going to discover and 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 turn the system upside down, or you will have these humans which turn into I mean well, well, I can't even remember where I'm getting this image from but you have these these little almost like large-headed babies in these little trans- transportation bubbles moving about, being basically bored because nothing challenges them and there's no risk and they can't get hurt and they can't die. So what's the point of anything? <laughs> oh, did you ever see Wally? I think that's probably where I'm getting at. <laughs> that's, what, that's what that's evoking to me. But I, but I think I must have, I think I must have seen a still somewhere and, and it, that resonated with me because it also reminded me of a short story I had read way way back so don't ask me for title or name or anything but when when so many writers create this future which is supposed to be perfect and it's not perfect how can we then say oh that's what we should have when it's almost like we clearly don't want it that is true my goodness did we just solve the problem of suffering no no (laughs) i don't think so Oh dear! Oh oh oh! Shoot! I meant to say um, I do appreciate what um, very much what Ted was doing in that short story. I keep going back to him. I'm so sorry, but he does deal with the problem of suffering very much in that story. How is the absence of God? Mostly in the subthread. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When comes to terms of her suffering, and then has to come to terms of her not suffering in a way. Right. Right. <laughs> but also, have you ever read or, or seen Doctor Faustus? Um, I know the story, but I've never seen it done. Well, the whole concept of, of hell being the absence of God, where, you know, the demon comes to tempt Dr. Faustus. And, and you know, he's like, you know, you've left hell. And he's like, no, no, this is hell, nor am I out of it. 
the idea that you're carrying hell with you because for him it was a case of hell is the absence of God. Mm-hmm. So physical location he was in, it was a state that he was in. So um, so I just I just very much appreciated that. I meant to mention that earlier. Sorry. Oh no, okay. no problem. So yeah, this so Crystal Nice. That was a that was a very fascinating tangent we went off on. <laughs> and I this in a in a disapproving way, but um, I'm saying it slightly embarrassed because I feel as if we really have a lot of other stories we need to look at. <laughs> Let's look at something a little different. Can we look at Yayuka? Let's look at Yayuka. Okay, so this is a mid-career story. This would have been written in the 90s. Um, this is a near-future story. The idea is that there's a medical technology um, that you can either wear as a ring if you're you know, rich enough or have access to as a part of a clinic. And of course, it's, it's more accessible to, to people in Western uh, and industrialized nations. And it, it basically is the, the whole, almost the holy grail of, of medical technology. It'll you know, uh, read your blood and make sure that your cholesterol levels are okay and detect cancer you know, almost as soon as it starts and help you cure it. And it's, it's just a, an overall, I think what he said, your life expectancy goes up 30 years just having access to one of these things. Although, of course, you spend those 30 years paying off the price of it. Right, right. So the the point of view story, uh, the point of view character is a doctor, an oncologist um, from Australia, I believe. Most most Egan protagonists are um, named Martin. Frankly, most Egan protagonists are also named Martin on average. It's something I haven't found a reason for that, but it it is just something I've noticed. Anyway, he... um, he decides to take a tour of duty in one of the African countries. In Uganda. Uganda specifically. And there people don't have access to the health technology as much. And more importantly, there's a specific kind of disease that the health technology could be programmed to cure but it has not been programmed to cure it because it seems to only affect basically people in poorer countries. And this, of course, is a disease that combines the worst aspects of cancer, HIV, and Ebola. Yes, all at once. Sort of, sort of as, as um, contagious, almost as contagious as Ebola, um, as lengthy in terms of how long it will take to dispose of you <laughs> as HIV. And as with the cancer, it's, it's these various tumors, and you have to be really careful if you are cutting the tumors out because if, if you slip as he did once and allow some of the fluid to go into the bloodstream that pretty much guarantees that more tumors are going to spread up elsewhere um, so he, he goes there almost almost like a challenge because there's no there's no health or medical challenge where he comes from but um, but this one is is a risk and a challenge to go to this place and to fight this disease under um, conditions that do not allow for this this technology. But the twist is, go on. The twist is that some of the the doctors that he works with, some of the doctors who are native to Uganda or, or have trained there, they have sort of cobbled together a, a back-end system that they think could hack into some of the medical technology and, and program it with the cure to this disease. Uh, what they need is a an actual unit that they can 
hack because if they hack one of their own then they revoke their you know one of the official units in the medical clinics then they'll revoke you know their license will be revoked and it'll be useless so they stage a a raid or a yeah basically a, a bandit attack on a yeah. on a he's willing to help them he he becomes um very disillusioned at the fact that capitalism and and sort of um filthy lucre has, has sort of motivated these um, medical people where they won't allow for this as you say the cobbled together treatment to be used um because they you, you correct me if i'm wrong it's almost like they hold the rights on the programming and so on mm-hmm. it's technology so if they themselves haven't um they they used a lot of data from the disease to help with other things um for the people who could pay for it right so of actually finding a cure for the disease itself there was there was no interest no financial interest in, for them to do that. Right. So he, he was horrified to learn this, and he was like, yes, of course, any way I can help. But he can't just take the monitoring ring off his finger because then they'll know. So then... So then they stage a bandit attack, basically, on a, on a convoy of these medical folks who are coming back from one of the outlying um, villages or suburbs or what have you. And, uh, and basically the, the other doctors say, as long as it looks like your ring was stolen then, you know, it'll basically it'll be okay and we can use it. And, and he has to let this, you know, sort of almost magic ring get ripped off his finger. <laughs> I got the impression that it would not even just be ripped off his finger, but like maybe even chopped, his finger chopped off. It might be. It might be. Is that he's a surgeon, so his hands are important. Yeah, yeah. So it does mean that, you know, chopping off a finger is... Um, I mean, first thing I thought, I'm very sorry, was Frodo Complex. <laughs> <laughs> I know, the more I'm describing it in words, the more I'm like, oh, this is a really, wow, yes. that's a very loader kind of story. <laughs> but but I had, I had some problems with this story. And I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> I had with it did not lie only with the story. You see, the, the, the finger scenario has um, already occurred in a novel written by a uh, an English writer um, about a an English writer, I think so, British writer, let's say, um, about an African country, and I'm not going to say which book. Anybody who wants to know which book, you can contact me, and I will let you know. The reason why I'm not saying it is because it's supposed to be a huge pivotal scene that they beg you not to spoil. But the point is that. There are two two girls in danger. They've been seized by these these men on the beach, and they're about to be raped and killed. Um, these are um, two African girls, and these two um, British tourists stroll by, and this British British couple, and they try to intervene. And the sort of the ringleader says to them something along the lines of, "If you really care that much, you know, chop off a finger." And I'll, and um, you know we're oh uh, we won't harm the girls, so the husband refuses to, but the wife seizes the machete or whatever and chops off her finger. And this this is a book that I will admit freely I did not read, but I know what I know because a friend of mine read it and was kind of irritated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Because he was like, you know, what, what what is this sort of, you know, is is it almost to highlight the triviality of her sacrifice that, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's a finger. She has to give up. 
you know and and so when i saw this again i was like is this is this symbolic in some way <laughs> well no i well I, okay so in in defense i think one of the big the big changes between that scenario and this one although again it it is you're right it's a relatively trivial sacrifice on the part of a westerner in in the and well in, as i said he in trade uh, for african lives mm-hmm. which is a very very troubling Yes, so he he gets to be a sort of a savior, which is always a problem. Well, but he's really reluctant. That's the thing. It's not like he's particularly that that that's where I think the difference is. the The African doctors are the ringleaders. They're the ones basically doing all the the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. and he's sort of like, oh yeah, Peace Corps. I really want to help as much as I. Hey, you guys, just tell me how to. Oh you oh you're gonna chop my finger off. Oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, this is an example of me not being so much irritated at the story as I'm irritated by the scenario it is presenting. Right, right. Which I do think just plugs so far into the Western narrative of Africa as a benighted country full of sick people that is just like, okay, way to not challenge the stereotype there. And and, and also just the whole, um, you know, you can save them in some way and, and this, and, and he's going to think himself a hero for this, you know, it's just... It's just and, and and there's there's both heroism and guilt wrapped up in it Very because so. there's the whole question of the the medical company being corrupt and and having um, unethically used data from the disease and left people to die. I mean that's that shades of, of Tuskegee all over again. I don't need to tell you about that, do I? No, no, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that one. Um, although I do want to say that just in the context of vegans broad body of work distrust of the medical industry is a common thread is a very common thread um he worked for as uh, for a while when he was out of college he worked as a programmer for medical for medical applications and Mm. he especially his early work uh, in the late 80s and early 90s is just chock full of wow you really can't trust these medical people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> insurance companies screwing people over, um, medical protocols gone wrong, um, the evils of animal research. I mean, he on, he was really, really disillusioned by his experiences with the medical industry. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. Definitely. So this was an extension of that, but it was an extension of that that crosses this, you know, quote unquote, first and third world divide. So I think, I think it's just. Um, I think that maybe if certain aspects have been written differently, and especially if I hadn't seen almost the exact same scenario in a previous book. Yeah, that that would really color a reading. Mind you, um, the book had that scene after he wrote this, because um, the book is like at least this decade, I think. Okay. So I'm not saying he ripped it off of anyone. Oh, no, but, no. You know, it does make you wonder what sort of common thing they're drawing <laughs> yeah there's probably a common well of symbolism there because again you've got your Tolkien and then this and then that and yeah, yeah there's I... definitely something there I, I don't have the, the depth of knowledge it would take to really p- tease out all the roots of that symbolic action mm-hmm. I don't know I really don't know but yeah so that one I don't know that one as you say that was in 97 I believe the Yuko was 97 and I'm I'm not sure um, how that how that stands up how that stands up now. I really am not quite sure. It's not 
And I almost feel like I have to apologize because the 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 list of stories that we've been reading, I I chose as the intersection of stories of vegans that are worth talking about and stories of vegans that are available online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I just chose the most important stories, that, you know, if I were to have to edit the best of Greg Egan collection, not that many of these stories would be in it. <laughs> But I very much still appreciate having seen these stories. First of all, because you gave uh, spread over the years, you can detect, if anything, an evolution of, of thought or change or yes. change in aspect. Um, but also because these stories are very much, <laughs> how to put it? The word I, I, I was going to use the word typical, but then that sounded as if I was damning a faint praise. But in terms of what science fiction comes up with, in terms of what you can expect from the the general range of science fiction stories, these stories, Egan stories, are not unusual. Very so, true. So in, in critiquing an aspect of Egan's stories, I'm not saying Egan is a, is a terrible writer. Egan is an excellent science fiction writer, but science fiction has its issues. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things that makes Egan so interesting and important to talk about even when he's in both his strengths and his weaknesses is the fact that what he does is so much at the core and the heart of science fiction as we know it that his strengths are often the strengths of science fiction his weaknesses are often the weaknesses of science fiction i before we move on though i if i had to to edit the best of greg egan um, some of the stories, just a handful of the stories that I would make sure to have on that list that are not in, going to be in this podcast are um, Learning to Be Me, Axiomatic, uh, Reasons to Be Cheerful. Those three are critical. Yeah, those, those three really are critical. <laughs> okay. You mentioned those three, and I think that there was one story in particular that you said um, kind of of touched on some of the aspects in those stories. Um, Closer. Closer shares technology with learning to be me. Mm-hmm. And it shares a, a little bit of the theme of axiomatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it all has to do with the potential. So, okay, so in Closer, the idea is that you're born when you're born you have a neural network implanted in your brain an artificial neural network it learns to be you and that is the whole theme of uh, learning to be me so it learns along with your brain it it basically takes all your life experience to train itself and by the way this is the, just about the only way that an actual neural network could become an intelligent uh, intelligent being and then at a certain point you um you have your brain, your organic brain removed and the neural network um, remains and then that's you moving mm-hmm. forward and, and your, your brain is essentially immortal at that point. So in Learning to Be Me, it's the relatively early days of that technology when people are still debating if, it was a good, if it's a good idea or not. In Closer, it's farther into the future. It's not near future, but I, I'd almost call it middle future. And so people, you know, this is just ubiquitous. This is just the way things are. You, you get, you know, you turn on your neural network and, and you can move into your immortal future. The story is about uh, a 
guy Michael and his girlfriend um, Sian, I believe. Mm. Uh, yeah, Sian. Okay, good, good. And they basically sort of come up with this joint, and again, kind of obsessive quest. It's kind of quirky. For Michael, it's an obsession. For Sion, it's just kind of fun. And it's basically to to overcome that barrier that says you can never truly know what it's like to be another person. Mm-hmm. And and they go through all these iterations. Um, first, he, he just in the opening paragraphs, he says, look, you know, art and literature don't quite do it for me. I just, you know, again, there's always that distance there. Drama and poetry, just there's always that distance there. And then he and Sion, you know, they, they become a couple and they share each other's life stories with each other, but they don't really have that experience of being another person. And they transfer their brains into different bodies and they are twins for a while and they're, you know, hermaphroditic versions of each other for a while and they swap genders all around. And the the final iteration is that their consciousnesses, the, basically the, the neural networks of their consciousnesses are blended. Synchronized. Say that again. Synchronized almost. Synchronized, yep. Put in two identical robot bodies in identical synthetic circumstances. They exist that way for eight hours, and then they're unmerged and put back in their original bodies. Mm-hmm. So they've both had the experience of being a blended person and then separated again. Yeah. And then... <laughs> and then they break up because, yes. you know, it's just so boring to be with somebody that you actually no, know that well. <laughs> yeah. Because interesting foreshadowing of that where, in effect, as, as Karen pointed out, they're immortal. And part of the reason why they're on this quest is they've realized that in order not to um, be bored while you're immortal, you have to keep, you know, refreshing your curiosity, finding ways to satisfy your curiosity. Stay curious. I think the actual quote is, if we're going to, if it's something along the lines of, if we're going to be immortal, we'd better stay curious. Exactly. So their relationship is is a sort of a mirror of that, where they. Oh no! Oh wait, sorry. I have to. I have to correct the quote. Sorry, go on. If we really are going to live forever, we'd better stay curious if we want to stay sane. Ah, sane. There you go. <laughs> and that's why Egan's a better writer than me. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so yes. So basically, they pursue this thing out of sheer curiosity. Their curiosity is satisfied, and there is nothing more to discover about this other individual. So why why bother? That's the idea, you know. So so then they break up. Now the the technology described and so on was was fascinating. The the whole the the various permutations they went through, the 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 care that they had to put into making sure that they were the same person almost at the same time in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I did appreciate, given especially that this was 1992, the casualness with which genders are bent, queered, and broken. Was mm-hmm. was really pretty cool. Well, you know, Heinlein been doing stuff like that before, anyway, right? Not. That, I mean, when not as not as well. Um, <laughs> not as casually. Am I right about what's it called again? Oh, time you... enough for love. 
please, hey. please let us speak no more of it. Ooh, no, no, sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I heard from somebody who knew Heinlein directly that even Heinlein was like, wow, what was I thinking? Well, you know, drugs. <laughs> Actually, apparently he'd been hospitalized and, and Time Enough for Love is what came out of that. That's, that's a rumor, totally unsubstantiated rumor. I'm just saying I heard from somebody I trust. And let, let's move on before we're, I don't know, jailed for slander or something. Exactly, yeah, before all the, Hein, the you know, decades worth of Heinlein fans come searching, come banging at the door with pitchforks. But, um, but you know, I even think, even like some of the things I used to look at, um, well, anyway, I do remember an era... And, and I think that there are others who are far more capable of discussing it than I am. Gary, I'm thinking, for example. I seem to recall an era of science fiction that was very experimental. Um, yeah, the new wave. I mean, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, I think, and, and Chip Delaney obviously wrote stuff that was way, way, way more transgressive than this. Right, right. But, um, but as you said, the casualness where it was not the focus of the story... But but yet it's still important the story because the whole idea is how are you going to know how the other half thinks if you know you've never been female and you're male, mm-hmm. and by- so it was a, still an, an essential part of what they had to do in, in order to to, to ex- explore these possibilities. What I didn't understand, but but <laughs> you see this is this is the challenge that I have. You have you have a setup, you have rules, you have consequences, or, or shall we say? results uh, arising from a certain set of circumstances. But then sometimes I feel that in order to get to the punchline of the story, there's some things that are almost glossed over. And for me in that story, what was glossed over is, okay, they've had the experience of knowing exactly what each other thinks in those eight hours. They will never be another eight hours like that again now they're separate. They're they're already divergent to become two different people again. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? See you in a year. <laughs> in about a year's time, you will really have diverged, and we can get back together, and we'll be wondering again, you know, what what's new and what's curious and whatever, and we'll find some other quest to go on. But this idea that it was kind of final removed the element from me of how time changes people. And as you said, that's not usual because in another story, he does mention that. Is that correct? Right. Actually, in Learning to Be Me, um, there's a moment where the artificial neural network that's been learning to be this this guy for his whole life, the junction that keeps, or the regulator that keeps the neural network and the organic brain always in lockstep breaks down before the official switch is made. And this is a, a spoiler for the story, but again, it was 1990, I believe, so, you know, tough. <laughs> Basically, it turns out that the perspect- the first-person narrator of the story is not the organic brain, it's the neural network. And the neural network ha- is trapped for a time in the body while the organic brain still has control. And you can see the personalities diverging within minutes. <laughs> Yeah. So Egan himself has written about how even personalities that have been forced to be in lockstep um, for decades will diverge instantly as soon as the opportunity arises. Mm -hmm. Um, This makes perfect sense because identical twins are not identical people. Exactly, exactly. And I hope people will pardon the the mouse clicking here. I'm going to take a page from Jonathan Strawn's cheating um, because I actually 
have, Mr. Egan was kind enough to send me his submission history. His entire submission history, every story he's ever had published, all the venues he submitted them to and, and how, you know, and at what times and how often it got rejected and everything like that. Because he is a gentleman. <laughs> he certainly did not have to do that and I very much appreciate it. And learning to be me was first was published in Interzone in 1990, but it was ah that one was not ever rejected. That was his first. The Interzone just took that right off the bat. Yeah, cool. Whereas Closer is published in Eidolon in 1992. Eidolon is an Australian zine or was an Australian zine. And it was first submitted in 1990, so it may have been written before. That and it, was is... re- it was rejected at least once. Okay, that is very interesting to know. Huh. So they would have been written roughly at the same time, but actually, um, uh, Running to Be Me got out of the gate first. Yes. And I, and I should say... <sighs> Oh, no, I do. it was first... Well, and actually, no, Learning to Be Me was written first, because its first submission was 89. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But, again, written closer in time than their publications would indicate. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly do not mean to suggest that there has to be perfect consistency in, in all stories. Oh, I think that sometimes when you are writing, when you're writing something and you have a particular focus you kind of may blur some of the things around the edges, like an impressionist painting, so that you can keep the focus on your, your, main, your main issue. So when, when I point out these nitpicky things, don't lose patience with me. Oh, no, not a bit. But one thing, you know, you could almost read the story as, you know, what they say is that, oh, you know, now we know each other too well and it's, it's boring. And certainly that is the the takeaway message that's actually in the text, but you could almost read it as, you know, they'd they'd had this quest that they and were the, pursuing together, and now that the quest is fulfilled... I would have understood that. That that actually would have made a lot more sense out of the ending. <laughs> I would have understood that. I would have. Oh, my goodness. Oh, but, but quickly connect to another story. Mm-hmm. There is an aspect of, of that same sort of slight picky feeling when I read Glory. Um, and Glory is one of the more recent ones. That's 2007, correct? Yes. And um, basically, the problem, for me, the problem with Closer was, you could say, psychological. I, I didn't believe that two people would make a decision based on that and, and have it be a coherent decision for the reasons I've just described. For Glory, um, a decision was made. We are getting the summary, fear not. But in a sense of how I think societies work, I didn't. So it left me with the same kind of <sighs> sort of feeling of irresolution at the end. But let's, let's summarize Glory. Well, actually, I want to present an option because we've been going for an hour and 10 minutes. Perhaps Glory should be the next one we, we pick up with when we pick up Egan again. I think we could gonna... kind of leave this podcast on a slight cliffhanger, as it were. Oh, man. 
there's still Singleton and Oracle and Oceanic and the Plague Day, but I was going to talk about religion and science. And, and tie it back to how is the absence of God and how Chang deals with religion. Well, and, and let me tell you, Gori is the reason that I'm an Egan scholar. So I've got plenty to say about Gori. Okay, fair enough. So, um, so then the only question is, uh, do we want to make the call? Do we talk about Erna Broadburn next, next podcast? And, and then, you know, continue with switching between the contemporary SF and the Caribbean SF? Or do we want to go straight on with Egan next week? You see, it's it's so hard to have people have a, a one-month cliffhanger as opposed to a two-week cliffhanger. Uh, that is true. We did kind of do the same thing with Chang, didn't we? A little bit, but, but you know, it, it. I don't know. It seemed to... It, we'd covered more of the, the Chang stories in that first yeah, podcast. Yeah. This this is this is a this is a, a challenge. Um, this is a challenge because oh man, I've got so much to say about Rainmaker's mistake. Risk um, and say let us let us switch over to the Caribbean lit. Okay. Um, because I I want people to hold the two threads in their heads as well. Okay. Because I think the time we come to the end and we we pull it together. In a, in a sort of a perfectly crafted examination of of the science fiction, fantasy, myth, etc. Because we're so brilliant, and I'm laughing if, if you don't. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I hope you've got something phenomenal stored up because I'm not there yet. <laughs> but you, yeah, it would be it'll be nice to have people balancing these two things. Okay. So, and bear in mind as well um, that you can also we can also tell you exactly what we're covering. So that if anybody decides they want to hear all the Egan at once, they can just pause on this one and save it for when the next one comes on and listen to them both back to back. Absolutely. Now, there is a risk that we might end up talking about the Sparrow before Ghosts, simply because I have not received my copy of Ghosts yet. Well, I thought that was already a given because after, oh, well... Oh, I see what you mean. Because if we do the Egan again, it means we push back the Sparrow some more. No, whatever happens, we then have to do the Sparrow after Egan. Okay, well, that that actually works better for me. Because like I say, I'm a little worried about where my copy of Ghost is at this point. No problem at all. Yeah, we we will. It, I would actually welcome saving Ghost for last. Okay, excellent. If, as long as that, that works well. That, so that will be the only time, hopefully, that we end up breaking the, uh, the one and then one uh, yeah. structure. And, and, you know, a little flexibility isn't bad. I mean, I like the fact that we are finding so much meat in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And, well, of course, I mean, we've, when you've got a story like Hell is the Absence of God, there's just, there's a whole lot going on there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and hopefully we will find similar things to talk about. Like I said, I think we were actually saving some of the meatier Egan for, for last. Yes, yes. And, um, and I, do, I do apologize to any Egan fans who think I may have been unfair. But remember, I am one person. This is one reading. There are plenty more out there. So fear not. Absolutely. And, and of course, I am... I, I, oh, gosh. Can I say I'm Egan's number one fan at this point? I don't think so, actually, anymore. Because when, you're, when you do this much scholarship on an author, it's, you go so far beyond fan to... Yeah, you just end up in a totally different headspace. Oh dear! Yeah, I, I actually, I, I, I'm going to be reviewing Eternal Flame for Strange Horizons, oh, and I'm mm-hmm. like, how do I review just a book of Egan's now? Because you're also be making references to the whole arc. Of yeah, his I'm like, no, no, it's not a book; it's an instance of his broader ovoir. 
<laughs> so this is, this will be interesting. I, I wish you luck with it. Yes. Thank you. I'll, I will need it. Okay, so uh, next week we will jump into Erna Brodber and the Rainmaker's Mistake, and we hope that our listeners will join us next time. See you then.